Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, that's where we have been. That's where we will continue to be, certainly today, as we are in chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5. We're in the middle of a very well-known passage on the fruit of the Spirit. We left off on verse 22, but I'm just going to read the whole passage just to set our hearts right this morning as we begin. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Last week, as you look at that passage, we looked at the first part of it, and specifically the works of the flesh, those evident works against the Spirit, those works, such behaviors, if you will, that speak for themselves. We talked about this. They're clear. They're clear. A clarity that we noted that was needed then in Galatia and also today for us. Because there is just so much confusion on things like these. Yet the Bible, and specifically in a passage like this, and we said this last time, is far from cloudy. There is no cross-pollination of the spirit in the flesh. By way of example, go to verse 17 again. I mean, this is clear. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Like oil and water, they are in opposition to one another. As we saw last week, that is not just a general statement of truth. Paul then mentions some of those flesh works right here in this passage, a vice list, if you will, that if you look at verses 19 to 20, it seems to go on and on, doesn't it? But as we noted last week, that doesn't mean that it's exhaustive. It doesn't mean that if it's one of these 15 things there, that's it. No, this list is representative. It's representative. It is these things as well as, look at verse 21, things like these. As this passage continues to enlighten us, today we turn to the Spirit. Today we will look at things that are in direct opposition to the flesh. And again, these manifestations of the flesh and spirit are opposed in every single way. From their manifestations, what they look like, and we're going to get to that, right up to their names. Look at their names. The works of the flesh 
and the fruit of the Spirit. As such, in just saying the names, some opening comments on the continued differences are necessary, are necessary before we dive in. First, I want you to note the contrasting descriptors. So it's works versus fruit. Do you see that? Works versus fruit. Works points to what? Deeds. Deeds of your hands. That is intention. That is effort. That is, if we can say, making a way for it. Making a way for it. And whether it is sexual immorality, idolatry, or divisions, we absolutely get this. There are works associated with these that are the product of our hands. Whether it's time spent there or money spent here, whatever it would be, this is work or works, as we would say. This is very much in opposition to what we'll see today. Look at it, which is fruit. Fruit. Fruit, beloved, is not a work. Fruit is something that is the product, actually, of someone else. Is that not true? Fruit is the product of someone else. We talked on Wednesday, just like the farmer cannot make the fruit. The farmer cannot make it grow off the tree. He didn't sit there and construct the fruit. So too, Christian, is it with us in the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, we can say by definition, are manifestations of the Spirit's work, not ours, in the work of the believer. Let me say that again. Fruit of the Spirit are manifestations of the Spirit's work, not ours, in the work of the believer. Fruit is not our efforts to walk, but here... Fruit is how we know who we walk in step with. Fruit is not who we work to be, but fruit reveals who we really are. That's helpful. By the way, when you think about fruit, this is the consistent theme in Scripture. You see fruit over a hundred times in the Old Testament and over 70 times in the New Testament. We were talking this morning in the class how this is the motif of Scripture, the vineyard, the fruit, right? This is the economy of God for his people. Fruit mentioned, as we say, in relation to God's people and as a product of being God's people. That's why it's just such a helpful metaphor. From Israel compared to a vineyard in the Old Testament to this, listen to this, directly from the mouth of Jesus in the New Testament, John fifteen five. You know this verse. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But hear what Jesus says. Fruit here is the natural result of being in him. You see that? It's a product of being in Christ. So that's one thing that we note off the bat. Fruit is not works. Works is not fruit. Secondly, we need to say this. We need to note not just the descriptors, But the amount, I don't know if you notice this, it's works, which is what? Plural. And fruit, which is singular. There are many ways to work, but only one spirit, we would say. Now, this is not just some small grammatical detail. This is deeply informative for us. How? It means that with works, there are some that are true of us and others that are not. Right? When you think of works, an itemized list, this could be us, this could be not. Again, like any pluralist, we get that when we examine it. However, that's not the case with fruit. 
which is singular of the spirit. It means that one, and note this singular spirit, gives this one singular package, if you will, fruit of the spirit. It means, Christian, if you are a Christian, and here it is this morning, let's settle into this, you have the horsepower in you for all of these. You have them. You have the horsepower in you. And yes, we would say, all of them that we'll see today in you right now if you are born again in Christ. Well, you might say, I know some of you are saying this, well, I've never been the loving type. I've never been very gentle and so on. I'm not very patient. That's right. You haven't been. You haven't been. But the Spirit is. The Spirit is. You're not, but the Spirit is. And the Spirit is now where? In you. In you. And it is true, some arise more than others. But listen, make no mistake about it. The fruit of the Spirit Christian are all there. They're all in you. They're all there. So finally, a bit of housekeeping, a last little bit, as we make these clarifications that are so important. Let's just clarify what the fruit of the Spirit is not before we descend into this list. The fruit of the Spirit is not the gifts of the Spirit. We're not talking this morning about spiritual giftedness. That is not in view in this passage. In fact, if you want to learn about spiritual giftedness, you would go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and so on. And the difference is spiritual giftedness, there's much more variance among believers. Does that make sense? Much more variance. It's like a nice mosaic put together. The fruit of the Spirit is clear. Looks, walks, and talks the same because it's the fruit of the Spirit. So that's one. Also, the fruit of the Spirit is not the works of the Spirit. This is not signs and wonders. Maybe you've heard it put that way, the fruit of the Spirit, but that's not it at all. This is not spirit power, spirit filling, or spirit blessing. That is the stuff of the first century, the unique birth of the church for that time. That's apostolic signs and wonders. That is absolutely not the stuff of us today, and certainly not what's communicated in this passage. And thirdly, we'd say the fruit of the Spirit is not the deeds of the Spirit. We really want to make sure we're clear on this. This is not the stuff of service. It's not service. This is not giving. It's not evangelism. It's not social justice. It's not providing meals. As good as all of those are, that's not what's in view here. Those are good deeds, but they are not what is in view with Paul in this chapter. No, church, the fruit of the Spirit is none of those, so then you ask now, what is it? Well, let's look. Let's take a look then at spirit fruit as we return to our passage. Galatians 5, 22, spirit fruit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, is love. The first word there, but signaling the transition, more like a contrast. That's your word of contrast. The works of the flesh were those, but the fruit of the spirit is these, Again, another cue on how different these two are, how opposed they are. You see there from the first word in the sentence to the first word in the list, love. Before we take a closer look at love and the rest, we have to note love's position. Love indeed comes first. And that is no accident, church. Love comes first. Love is not only above all the rest, but note this, love governs all the rest. Love governs all the rest. Love is the fountainhead from which all the rest are going to flow. 
Love of God, first and foremost, as Jesus taught, as the sum of the whole law. That's the vertical. But then remember the second great commandment. What was the horizontal that logically flows from that? Think of Mark 12, 31, verse we covered. The second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love. Love is the guiding principle and the power in all of our relationships. This, of course, has already been referenced by Paul in this very chapter. I mean, we haven't distanced ourselves from it very much. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. And then listen to this. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then this reminder, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we've already been introduced to this and its preeminence in this chapter. And especially when you talk about the work of the Spirit amongst the brethren. The preeminence of love, in fact, continues right through this epistle into the New Testament. I think about 1 Corinthians 13. That chapter, that famous chapter on love is capped with this. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love, the great and highest ethic. Beloved, love is at the wheel here. And we'll see love flowing into and through and out of all of what we're about to see. So let's take a close look then, as close as we can, in a morning like this. That's why we have our midweek, by the way. We will be able to take an even more drill-down approach midweek. But for now, we want to see what the Lord has us. We just survey the fruit of the Spirit. First, look at it, love. Now, we need to make sure we get our definitions correct. Another thing we were talking about this morning is making sure we understand the definitions that we're talking about. Love is one where you have all kinds of definitions this morning on what love is. Right? You all do. And very much, if we're not careful, we can bring a definition that is not in line with what the Bible says. Love is defined here and throughout Scripture. And again, we don't have time to get through all of this today. But we would say this. This is not pleasant emotions or good feelings. That's not what love is. But it is willing giving of yourself. We're going to talk about the word for love that Paul uses here, which is the New Testament word for love, agape love. And if we could boil it down to something, it's this self-giving. That's what this love is, self-giving. And I just want you to think for a moment, just nestle in this this morning. You live in a society where you're told that love is all about what you would get. You feel good. Your needs are met. Do you see how the Bible is the exact opposite of that? And really, the true definition of love is self-giving. Self-giving. So you want to get that definition right. This is, when you think about self-giving, this is a distinctly Christian virtue, and it dominates the New Testament. Listen, 120 times agape love appears in the New Testament. 75 of those times are in Paul's letters. And Paul, of course, is prescripting the church on how to live life. And he says, self-give yourself to each other. Self-give yourself. And that's what he's saying. It is a love that is self-giving, and it's also not dependent on anything. In fact, it is love, we would go this far, when you think of biblical love, it is a, biblical love is a love that's undeserved. And this, again, arrests us. Because when you think about the warm and fuzzies, there's something that needs to be dependent on that to make that happen. This is love undeserved. And as Christians, as Christ followers, we look to Christ 
as the example. Romans 5.8, note this, you, may, you know this verse. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were faithful and really good Christians, no. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Christ showed his love for us while we were wretches. That's love. That's self-giving love. Christ's love wasn't conditioned on our inherent goodness or good work. Christ's love, as we said already, wasn't the fuzzy emotional response to some gift or some deed that we did for him. No, Christian, Christ's love was demonstrated to the most unlovable people, and that's right, that's you and I. That's agape, self-giving love. And if that kind of love, that self-giving, self-sacrificing, other-focused love, if that kind of love sounds impossible for you, well, again, you are right. You are right. It is. It is impossible for us. It is not of you at all. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And Christian, this is the fruit that you bear. This is the fruit that you bear. That is love. Flowing from that, we would have the second, joy. Joy. Joy, we would say, by definition is this. This is a settled state of mind, not a result of environment or circumstances. Like love, this is distinctly Christian. This is Joy is one of those words, if you've been around a church for a long time, you hear the word joy a lot, and there's a reason why. Because we see it a lot in the New Testament, but it doesn't stand alone. In fact, joy sits alongside a phrase that you see all the time in the New Testament. Have joy, but have joy in the Lord. The two go hand in hand, and that's where joy comes from. Westmount, listen, joy is not happiness. We're not talking about happiness here. Happiness always is conditioned on circumstances, every time. Why am I not feeling good today? Why am I not having a good day? 100% of the time, it's because your circumstances aren't well. Well, that's not joy. Joy transcends. Joy is above circumstances. This is a settled state. This is delight from the Holy Spirit, a deep joy that is bigger inside than anything going on outside. That's joy, Christian, and you can have that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Again, for our example, we look to Jesus. Think about Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2 tells us who Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Church, the shame and wrath Christ bore on the cross, he did with joy. And you'd say, I can't make that connection because it was a delight in the Father's will. And that's what that verse tells us. And if Christ could have joy in such horrific circumstances, then Christian, we can as well in far less environments, right, than Jesus did. Because as Christians, we look to Jesus as our example what he did, and what he purchased for us. And that brings us to our next one, which is peace. 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 This is not just the absence of chaos. There's again where we have to get these things straight. Peace is not just the absence of chaos. This is a positive state of wholeness. I love the Hebrew word for this, shalom. It captures it so well. This is complete peace, mind and body, holistic and that's helpful because this peace is not just physical, but it is spiritual. This is peace that is a tranquility of the soul that is now reconciled to God. 
This is peace that knows there is nothing man or the earth can do to you. And beloved, can I say just by way of current example, this is the peace, Christian, that we have today with coronavirus. This is the peace we have. There is no pestilence that can touch us unless it filters through God and God's ordained it for our good. We have peace in God because it's not about this body. It's about our soul and our soul's eternity, not the fate of this drop in the ocean that this world is called for us, this life here. It's about where we will go when we die. And beloved, you have peace because your eternal fate is secure. No matter what happens out there, your eternal fate is secure, rock solid, sealed by the same Holy Spirit. And that is why, that is why you would stand out in a world that's panicking. That is why you can sit at home and not replay the what-ifs, but you can come here and sing because you have peace. You have been reconciled holistically, not just here, but for eternity. I pray that helps in this time that we're in. This is the fruit of the Spirit that you have. This is the peace that Jesus left his disciples. By the way, Jesus knew what kind of world was coming. The omniscient one knew what kind of world was coming. He said this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then listen to this. Not as the world gives... So that tells us there's a worldly peace that's not we're not talking about here. This is not ceasefire. This is not okay. You know that they made up and that everything is okay. I just have a calm day. No, not as the world gives to you do I give to you. He says, "My peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid." There's our verse for times like these. And that's it, Westmount. Peace. Not that the world gives, but peace from Christ. In fact, two times in the context of that chapter. He says he's going to send who to them? The helper, the Holy Spirit, four times that are coming. He says your peace will be driven by the one that's going to come when I go to the Father. And beloved, you have that Holy Spirit in you now, that one. And more so here, Christian, peace that we can have, and this is really what Paul has in view here, that you can bring to others. Jeremy was reminding us why we've made these changes, why we need to make some of these changes. Because we love brother. We love sister. We may be okay, but brother and sister is not. And that's why we do it. We bring peace to them. And that's the whole economy of what Christ was talking about in John 14. So that's peace. Patience is next. Patience. This is calm willingness to accept situations that are irritating or painful. And that's really important. This is not like maybe you stood in long lines this week and you're just maybe patiently doing that, right? This is not at the doctor's office. This is not that. That's not patience, right? That's not what's in view here. It's, it's a different form of patience. It's not this. This is, here's your word, this is long-suffering. This is long-suffering. And there's your Bible word. This is God long-suffering with the Israelites who were what? Neutral? long-suffering with his people who were rebellious and stubborn and difficult, one who bears with that, like a thorn, like something up against you, something always in your face, bearing with that opposition, that's what's in view here. That's long-suffering. 
That same patience, by the way, that this same God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had with Paul. Listen to 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul says, giving his testimony, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, he's referring to foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. I want you to think about Saul, who would soon become Paul. His whole life was in opposition to the way, to Christians. And he talks about how that's a perfect patience because you can't have someone more ruthless to destroy the way in the Christians than Paul. And here he says, God had perfect patience with me. While I was killing and executing and going door to door, dragging out the Christians, God was patient and long-suffering with me. And the idea there is in opposition. In opposition, God was patient with me. That fruit of the Spirit is not just one that God had with you, Christian, before you were saved, but it is one now that we are called to have as a fruit of the Spirit. Again, this is not just waiting patiently, right, for something to start. This is will you bear with very difficult people and difficult circumstances. That's the long-suffering. God did with you, and now you have that same Spirit in you, to do to others. Patience. Kindness. Kindness. This is simply tender concern for others. This is, again, as we get definitions right, this is not sentimentality. This is not going soft. This is not weakness or having no backbone. No, this is the kindness that Christ displayed when he brought the children close. Do you remember that? He brought the children close. This is kindness of Christ in his offer of salvation. This kindness. Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's Christ's call. Yes, Christ, our example, our Savior, was gentle and kind. And no matter, loved one, what your disposition is today, so can you. So can you. Again, this is fruit of the Spirit. This is in you if you are in Christ. You have it. Next, goodness. Goodness. We would define this as moral excellence and kindness in action. In fact, if you want to be more specific, we could say that divine generosity is what it is. You can really see the logical flow here, the overlap and connectivity. Kindness is concerned and offers help. Goodness fulfills it abundantly. This is what compelled Christ to go to the cross for us. I think about Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, there are those attributes, by the way, side by side. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. This is the fuel, right, behind your salvation. Goodness, kindness. And as Christians walking by the Spirit, similarly, you can bring kindness. We can bring goodness with the Holy Spirit in us. Next, faithfulness. Faithfulness. More than just dependability, this is loyalty and trustworthiness. Faithfulness, we would say it this way, is fidelity. Faithfulness is fidelity. Fidelity is a forgotten word today, is it not? Fidelity is just gone. In fact, many people don't even know what that means because we've given up on a word that's so much about integrity. Fidelity is this good husband-wife word. We've lost it. 
Fidelity, this faithfulness, is reliable in all its dealings with others, as we look to understand this word. And again, faithfulness has just lost all of its honor today. The faithful are fading. Yet this virtue should be the hallmark of the church, should it not? We are what? The faithful ones. We are the faithful ones. In fact, it's the mark of the Christian faithfulness. Christian, because of this fruit, we should be the ones that all others can count on. Why? Not because we are inherently reliable. No, because we are a product of the faithful one. The one whose faithfulness has been great from the beginning. Think of Lamentations 3. Great is thy faithfulness. And who is faithful? The same one who's faithful right to the end. Revelation 19.11, you know what he's called? Faithful and true. Faithful and true. That's who your God is. That's who your Savior is. Next, as we turn to verse 23, we get the next one. Gentleness. Gentleness. This is genuine humble consideration of others. This is meekness. Now you hear that word meekness and think, wow, now that's a word I don't want to be associated with. Unfortunately, the idea of gentle meekness or gentleness, period, has lost again its true sense today. This is where we biblically redeem this word. You think when you hear gentle and meek, you think wimpy, you think passive, right? You think no backbone maybe, being lame. Meekness, far from weakness, is this. Let me give you this definition. Gentleness, meekness, is strength under control. Strength under control. That is true gentleness. And I mean, there is no greater example of this than our Savior. Listen to this in Philippians 2, this passage, this great condescension of Jesus Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, think about this gentleness, this meekness, this strength under control, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hang on to that, to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hang on to my deity, I'm going to employ all of my deity. No, I'm going to lay that down under control. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And then this being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Strength under control. The almighty God, the almighty God, gentle and meek and lowly. I mean, we have all those Christmas pictures of the manger, the birth in a manger as a baby. That is strength under control. That is the gentleness in view here. That example of Christ is why Paul can exhort the spirit-filled Philippians. What does he say to them? Think of the interests of others. Humble yourselves. That's the whole context of that passage in Philippians 2. Because Christ did. One last one, very connected to that. You see how the list fits together? Self-control. Gentleness is strength under control. Self-control is now your whole self. In control. This is having mastery or restraint over passions, wants, and appetites. Such is so important. This fruit of the Spirit demonstrates itself with nothing having control over you. That's what this is. Nothing has control over you. This is self-control because you are under the Spirit's control. You have self-control, Christian, because you're under the Spirit's control. This is spirit fruit that enables you to say no. This is the fruit of the Spirit that enables the no. This is the self-control that Jesus demonstrated throughout his time on earth. Do you remember in the wilderness? 
What did he say to Satan? No, no, no. It's that self-control. He didn't need self-control. He's God. But as a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, that's what he was doing. He was saying no to employing his divine rights. His divine rights. And again, Christian, Jesus is our example. He denied, and so can we when we walk by the Spirit. A Christian walk with fruit that looks like these is evident with these. However, these nine here, as you take in the list as a whole, like their counterpart, right? Set them against the works of the flesh. This list is not exhaustive. Look at the summary phrase, the same kind of thing we saw with works of the flesh. Look at the end of verse 23. Against such things there is no law. Now, saying that, two things warn to mention very, very plainly in this text. Number one, against such things. That tells us, like works of the flesh, everything you see here is a representation. It's not an exhaustive list. Again, this is not for us to go to it like a checklist and you know, say, okay, well, I got these nine and just these nine. No, it, against such things. It's representative. It suggests that there are other dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit. I think we can even think of some today. Secondly, there is no law. There is no law against such things. We had a brief discussion about this on Wednesday night, and this just flows out of the fact that when you are living in the fruit of the Spirit, when that's manifesting itself, there is no law for such things because none is needed. And just to state it again, this means no law forbids these virtues. It doesn't need to. It doesn't need restraint, not the fruit of the Spirit. None is needed. You don't need law works when you have spirit fruit. It's as simple as that. Aristotle. Aristotle once said of a similar list, listen to this, that people so led by virtue are above the law. When we think about above the law, we think of corruption. But the idea he's getting at being above the law is that they they are a lot of themselves. They're living righteously. They're living rightly. If this is their ethic, if this is how they live, and think about it, it's true. If everybody lived this way, you would not need any law. That's what he's saying. Even the philosophers recognize that people living virtuously, ethically, and rightly have no need of restraint. Again, because really they are a law unto themselves. And that's actually precisely what we're going to get to next week when you look at chapter 6, verse 2. We'll actually see law again, but now it's in the proper scope, the law of Christ, the law of Christ. Church, the fruit of the Spirit is the product of walking by Christ, walking by the Spirit. Paul now reminds us of how that is even possible. Again, as we wrestle with that this morning, maybe, Paul pauses here to remind us how this is even possible, how we can even bear fruit as Christians. And it's our next point, not just spirit fruit, but flesh futility. Look at verse 24, flesh futility. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look at that first phrase there. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those of Christ. Those in Christ. His own. Those are the ones who will walk by the Spirit and produce what? The fruit of the Spirit. Those in Christ. Why? Because, look at it, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Yes, you, Christian, in that decisive moment that you repented and accepted Christ, in that moment past... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And hence, you took on Christ. 
You were united with him. This is that rich doctrine of union with Christ. You were joined with him, united with him in that death and in that life. A death that marked this, a death on that cross that crucified the flesh with all of its subsequent passions and desires. Which again doesn't mean that they all go away as a Christian, right? We've talked about this over the past few weeks, so we don't need to go there again. It doesn't mean they all go away. You have that remnant of unredeemed nature just there. And, and it yearns for the full completion of our redemption. Doesn't mean they all go away, but listen, here's the important piece, our takeaway. It's an unredeemed remnant, but they have no power. The flesh has no power. And again, this is what we covered. So important. The flesh and its desires are now a thing of futility. They have no power in your life, Christian. They are done. They are crucified. That is why you now have life. A life in Christ that is, listen, led by the Spirit, obeys the Spirit, walks by the Spirit. And can I say, Christian, wants to. One of the greatest examiners of if you're in Christ is, do you want to follow Jesus? In the hard stuff even. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you say, Jesus, I want to follow you, and then something's presented in the word of God? You say, okay, that's hard, but I still want to follow you. And you don't fall away. That's your simple marker. Do I want to obey and be led by the Spirit? That's your reality, Christian. But as we've said, how easily we forget and are misled when we come to difficult circumstances or difficult chapters. How often we're misled or, I would say, difficult influences. So here again, the truth of this section restated in verse 25. Look at verse 25. We've heard this before. Paul restates it, and there's a reason. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's that formula we've seen all over, very common to Paul. Truth, therefore, command. This is true, therefore, go and do. Go and do. Here, if you live by the Spirit, which, by the way, is a rhetorical way of saying that you do live by the Spirit. You do. Christian, if that is true, that you have life by the Spirit, that same Spirit, that didn't leave Jesus on the cross, that Spirit, right, that didn't leave him in the tomb, that raised him from the dead, if that is true, then look at it, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be led by the flesh, beloved, We say to cap this chapter simply, do not give the flesh a position that it no longer holds. Again, I feel like we've said that so much, but it's so important. This is the point of this chapter. Do not give the dethroned, crucified flesh a position that it no longer has. That's the Christian life. And it's not just you shouldn't, it's because you can. You can now live in Christ. The flesh is futile. It has been defeated. It's been crucified. Now, You're in the Son of God and live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The last verse, by way of summing it up, Paul has done this before in verse 15, gives a very personal application to likely what's going on in Galatia. Look at this final verse in 26. He says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, Paul, he's done this before and he'll do this at times with each congregation. He seems to be addressing something very specific to this local body. You see this in Philippians 4.1. He addresses two ladies specifically and says, get on in the Lord. And you see this in 1 Timothy 1. You have the Hymenaeus and Alexander. You see, he, he turns at times, and it comes at the end of an exhortation when he says, specific body, 
you need to deal with this issue. So in other words, he's heard something about them, and now he turns. And this is what it is right here. So obviously, there's conceit going on with these Galatians. There's provocation. There's envy in Galatia. And maybe there were factions growing. Maybe there was a faction of Paul. Maybe there was a faction of the Judaizers, right? We don't know. We don't know. But obviously, he's addressing something here. And we get a glimpse of this again in verse 15. In fact, it was so bad in Galatia. What terms does he use? You're biting. You're devouring one another. So behind the Judaizers coming in, we get a sense that they're tearing each other apart. This is your picture of what's going on in this assembly. It's nasty stuff. And again, we see it here a couple of times in this chapter. They're at each other, provoking and envying. But what's the source? Here's the key. What is the source of that provoking and envying? Look at it themselves, the flesh, that conceit. If you have an ESV, it says conceit. I like the King James word here, vainglory. That really is just putting those two words together in the Greek. Empty glory. Empty. Every conceited person is dealing with empty glory, right? Because it's a glory they feel is due themselves. Call it what you will, but make no mistake, vainglory, conceit, is a work of the flesh. It's all self. It's all self. Paul, as he did back in verse 15, ends a passage with a graphic and disturbing picture of like, again, of likely what was going on in Galatia and what happens, Westmount, when we live in the flesh. When we live in the flesh, we can expect the same. When we live in these works of the flesh, this stirring picture would be true just as much now, 2,000 years later. But it's flesh futility. It's flesh futility because we shouldn't be, we don't have to be, and that's why, Westmount, knowing that this still is a reality for us as God's people 2,000 years later, that's why we need graphic, stirring pictures like this in our battle with the flesh because we are prone to put it on the throne. We're prone to give it ground. We need that picture of the crucified flesh. Look at verse 24. And that picture, not just once. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, listen to what Jesus said for those that would say, I want to follow Jesus. He said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here, your savior, Westmount, daily you take up that cross and you walk following him. That's every day. And that logically means in your battle with the flesh each day, it will be like, to use the metaphor that Paul is using, it will be like a daily crucifixion in your life. Not of the Son of God again. We're not talking about that. It means of the flesh. You practically, what's the output? It's a daily crucifixion of your flesh. That's what's going on here. And Westman, I think we all understand what this means. Every single day we have verses like renewing our minds, putting on Christ, daily crucify the flesh. Let me leave you with three things as an application to this idea of having crucified the flesh. I hope it's helpful as a way to make this stick for us because we are prone to wander. One, we talk about having crucified the flesh daily. Daily, it says to us, the flesh is something worthy of crucifixion. You see that? Paul doesn't just say, well, you know, just put it out of your mind, that fleshly thing, right? This is not the mindfulness of today. Just find yourself a room, scream in a pillow, and just the flesh will go away. Paul says, crucify it. 
And on that, we would say it's worthy of crucifixion. We walked through in our study of Mark, did we not talk about crucifixion being the most graphic and horrible of deaths for this time? So in other words, Paul is harnessing a way that they would kill people and say, the way that they're doing that to people that's inhumane and you can't believe and you fear, do that to your flesh every day. Every day. The flesh deserves crucifixion. So beloved, we need to keep that in mind. We don't flirt with the flesh. We crucify it. We crucify it. Two, this metaphor means the flesh battle, like crucifixion, will be painful. It will be painful. I was talking to some of you after class today. This is something that gets lost in sanctification. We only rise to the point where then it hurts a little bit. Well, then I'm out. Right? We don't understand the Bible talks about the fact, like crucifixion, when you look to mortify the flesh, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Beloved, I would say this, if your battle against the flesh is not painful, you're not making progress. If your battle with the flesh is not causing pain, then you're not progressing. And you say, well, what do you mean by pain? That sounds rough. I mean the struggle, the blood, the sweat, the tears. And don't listen to me. Listen to the word of God. Hebrews 12.4. If you're taking notes, definitely write this verse down. Hebrews 12.4. In your struggle against sin. Do we struggle against sin? In your struggle against sin, have you not resisted to the point of shedding blood? In other words, it's going to cost you. It's something of you in your battle against sin. This metaphor says it all. And in your struggle against sin, if you're not gaining victory in that thing, simply we ask, does it hurt? Does it hurt? Don't pull the ripcord. Crucify it. Thirdly, daily the flesh battle, like crucifixion, must be decisive. It must be. You need to be resolved. You need to be resolved. I picked on Jim so much and he's not here. But one of the things he reminds us that I appreciate All those decisions, whether at the food table or the lust table, if you don't make that resolution before that arrives, it's done. You need to be resolved. You need to be decisive. This is why New Year's resolutions crash. Because come February, people have forgot the decisiveness that got them to Jan 1. Decisive. In the ancient Near East, everyone who was crucified, what was the mortality rate of crucifixions? 98%? 83%? 100 percent the ancient near easterns the assyrians first and then on through to the romans they did it because it worked it was decisive it was effective and here it was it was a deterrent this could be you do you do that to the flesh are you decisive with your flesh beloved it's no different to you it worked back then and it works now be decisive in the flesh crucify the flesh each day kill it Not because there's a good chance that you'll beat it if you just keep at it. That's not the way it works. Not because you'll increase your odds by trying to mortify it every day. No. Crucify the flesh daily, beloved Christian, because you can. You can. You can. And more because he did. This is the whole thing come together, is it not? This is not a feel-good Tony Robbins kind of upbeat speech. You know, just try harder and you get... No. It's done. You can. It's been crucified, so you can go and crucify. Does that make sense? It's done, so you can do it. And part of making that happen is walking in step with the Spirit. This is what we've talked about before. Reading your Bible, communing with God, being here, staying on those well-worn paths. That's how you crucify the flesh. Christ 
took your flesh and crucified it so that you could do so every day, practically as you live your life. And now we would say, let him do it. Right? Let him do it each day. Yield to the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. Let him take your life and use it. Let him do that. Yield to the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And, though, and doing that, as we've seen in this passage from the very beginning, verse 16, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's do that together, Westmount, and let's pray.